Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, God's word says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Lord, would you use your word? May it not return void. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. So may it strengthen us, encourage us, and give us hope for the week ahead. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, throughout time, Christians have tried various ways to pass on the faith to their children. One method has been a catechism, a set of questions and answers that walks through the important aspects of the faith. Well, B.B. Warfield, in seeking to encourage parents in the use of what is called the Shorter Catechism, told the following story. It was the middle of the Civil War, and one town in the Midwest was filled with rioting. Yet in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pandemonium, one man confidently walked right down the street through the midst of the chaos. His poise was so great that people were like magnetically drawn to him, watching how could he have such character in the midst of all that's going on. One man, remembering how his mother had told him not to stare at strangers, was waiting for the confident man to pass by so that he could stop staring. But instead, he found himself like a magnet, drawn to turn around at the man. And yet to his shock, when he turned, he realized the man had stopped and turned around and was staring at him. He came up and pressed him in the chest and asked, what is the chief end of man? And somewhat relieved, as he'd memorized the shorter catechism, he said, why it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the stranger said to him, you know, I knew you must be a shorter catechism boy by your looks. And the man said, you know, that's exactly what I was thinking about you. Now, the point in sharing that story is not that you go memorize the shorter catechism. Rather, I share the story to illustrate how when we come to know the truth of God and his word, it changes us. In this case, the man grew in confidence and assurance that even in the midst of chaos, they were not unnerved, for they knew and trusted God's control and goodness. And as we come to know more of Christ, as we come to love him more, it changes us. The emphasis of our passage this morning is since we know Christ, let us seek to live like Christ. You know, this emphasis is the, what we saw a couple weeks ago when we noted how Ephesians 1-3 through 3 is all about instruction about Christ, and then Ephesians 4-6 through 6 is all about how to live in light of that, we're first instructed in who God is, and then only after that are we instructed in how to live. Well, this morning, we're going to be shown four things. First, we're going to be shown that we should be walking worthily of our calling. Then three aspects of that are given. Walking humbly, walking gently, and walking patiently. So first, walking worthily, we see that in the first verse, because Paul begins this second section of the letter by using the metaphor of walking. And if you look down in your Bible, notice some other places. Chapter 4, verse 17, he says, 
Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Or if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Or look down, chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but you are now in the light. Walk as children of the light. Or chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so Paul is using this metaphor of walking over and over to highlight that being a Christian is not merely a past event. I walked an aisle, I was baptized, I prayed a prayer. Rather, the Christian life is something that's ongoing. It's not a frenetic sprinting or an aimless wandering. Rather, the Christian life should control your whole life. It is your conversion till the day God calls you home. And Paul strongly implores us to walk worthy of our calling by writing, I urge you. you know, the strength of this exhortation can be seen how this word is used in other places. For example, Mark chapter 1, verse 40, a leper came to Jesus and it says, and the leper claimed to Jesus, imploring him, that's the same word, and kneeling said to him, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, being a leper made you a social outcast. It kept you from temple worship and destined you to a life of physical pain, emotional and relational shame and financial poverty. Even in our own church, we've known this last year of children being diagnosed with late stages of cancer, of increasing seizures. And our prayers to God, our prayers to God have been imploring Oh God, heal them. Thus the leper and Paul are not saying, you know, it'd be nice if you would consider this. Or the tone is not, well, this is good for me and my Christian walk, but if this isn't how you want to be a Christian, that's okay for you. No, Paul implores us, walk worthy of God. And he tells us to walk worthy of our calling. And Paul's already mentioned our call in his prayer in chapter 118. You can look back if you want, because there he prayed that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We just read in chapter 4, verse 4, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Thus God has called us to hope. And the reason we're called to hope is because God calls us to himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or Acts 2.39, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God calls us to himself. And he doesn't call those who are already doing well. Rather, he says in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thus, to walk in a worthy or suitable manner of our call is to turn from our sin and follow Christ. This is why 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Or 1 Peter 1.15, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And so, really, this verse here, chapter 1, chapter 4, verse 1, this verse is setting the context for the rest of the letter. The rest of the letter is going to be explaining how in your church life, with your emotions, with your words, with your marriage, with your children, with your work, 
How do you walk worthy of God? And he's going to show us. And since we know the hope of being called to God, we now want to live in light of God in all areas of our life. And while we're gathered as a church, this message resonates with us. However, it doesn't take much reflection to realize this message flies in the face of our culture. The culture says, walk however you want to walk. Don't let anyone, don't let any church or any person dictate your life. You're unique. You're special. And no one but you, so we're told, should determine your life for you. Yet it doesn't also take much reflection to realize that's not the path to freedom, but to bondage. Haven't you desperately wanted to do something, and then after you did it, you immediately regretted it? Haven't you followed your heart and then realized it was deceitful? Unloading on that person felt right. That is, until you realize how much damage it caused them in your relationship. Pursuing that experience or that person seemed to give life. But now you know how much destruction and pain it has brought. Well, the Bible gives us a better message. Follow God. For his ways don't always bring immediately worldly pleasure, but they are good for you and they will bring lasting pleasure. He knows what is best and he cares. And so walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which he's called you. And tied to this is the reality that, well, yes, we are all individuals. We are connected to others. Thus our actions affect how other people are viewed. Children's actions reflect on their parents. Employees' actions reflect on their employer, and so on. You may remember the words of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. His actions brought shame, not just upon him, but upon the family. So he was not worthy to be associated with the family anymore. Well, we are called to Christ, to be like Christ, and we represent Christ to the world. Thus, walk worthy of your calling, since you're not just affecting your family, but God is at stake. The amazing news, though, is though we often do dishonor God's name, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Knowing God's amazing grace to welcome us back and forgive prodigals like us then leads us to the second thing, that we are to walk humbly. Walking humbly, he says at the beginning of verse 2, or walk with humility. But it's interesting, being humble to this culture, the Ephesian culture, was not something they aspired to. One commentator notes, being humble was much despised in the ancient world. The Greeks never used their word for humility in a context of approval, still less of admiration. Instead, they meant by it an abject, servile, subservient attitude, the crouching submissiveness of a slave. But we're in Ephesians. Flip over one book to Philippians chapter 2. We read it earlier, but I want to highlight verses 3 through 7. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And then there's a contrast, but in humility. So the contrast with humility is selfish ambition, conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Thus the clear contrast of humility is selfish ambition. You may be familiar with the Greek mythology of Narcissus, a handsome young man who was walking along and he saw his reflection in a pool of water. And he so loved that picture in the water, he wouldn't leave. And he stayed staring at his image until he died. And so today we call people who love themselves narcissists after the Greek mythology. And what is this about? It's self-ambition. You know, there's really nothing under, new under the sun. You know, things ebb and flow, but people throughout time have loved themselves. You know, a study was done a few years ago about songs in the U.S. and the lyrics in them. And over the last couple decades, our songs have decreased in the words, we and us, and have increased in the words, I and me. One famous singer even famously said, I'm teaching people to worship themselves. You know, we're a nation of self. Self-esteem, self-expression, self-admiration, and let's say what it really is, selfishness. And the problem with narcissists and us is that we don't have an accurate view of ourselves. And Ephesians, back to Ephesians, and Ephesians has reminded us, has helped us get away from the carnival-like mirrors that we see of ourselves. Sometimes we're tall and skinny, sometimes we're wide and fat, but we never get an accurate picture. But Ephesians has reminded us of the truth about us, the world, and God. Well, what have we seen in Ephesians? Well, we've seen that this world was made by God, for God, and He works all things according to the counsel of His will. He's in control. Thus, life is not about us. We are not the center of the universe. Not only that, but though we rebelled against God and were dead in our sins, God loved us. He sent His Son to die for us and raised us to newness of life. In other words, all we deserved was His anger and punishment, but instead, all He pours out on us due to Christ is grace, love, and kindness. Thus, true humility is not working around, walking around saying, I'm worthless. It's the difference of realizing I'm unworthy of God's love, but that doesn't mean I'm worthless. Not only is all that true, but as we just read in Philippians 2, Jesus didn't look out for his own interests, but also others. He humbled himself. Thus, if the God of the universe humbled himself, it's not a shame to be humble. It's the greatest honor in the world. And Paul begins here in Philippians 4.2, the various aspects of walking in a worthy manner of our calling with the virtue of humility because it's foundational to the rest. You know, if we have humility, all of these others will flow from it. You know, often our pride thinks, I deserve better. I earn this. Well, who could have said that more than Jesus? He made all things, all people. He was and is God. But what did he say on earth? I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. In contrast to him, 
What do we have that we have not received? So rather than boasting of talents or possessions or relationships or achievements, we can use any and all of those things to serve others. Every blessing is a gift of God to serve God and others. Thus, we need to get really practical and serious for the first and foundational way to walk worthily of the call of God is to kill the me monster. To start the day with prayer that God would help me to lose grip on my agenda, my time, my plans, my, my, my. Now this is not to say that we should never consider ourselves, for even Jesus took time to eat, sleep, drink, go off alone and pray. Rather, it's to realize that if we're honest, the person we care most about is ourselves. And let's be honest, we easily remember the times in the past when we've been slighted, and we easily hold grudges when we don't think we've been recognized for our work. We're easily angered when the meal isn't right, or the traffic is wrong, or those around us aren't catering to our needs. If, though, we saw that the people around us are beings to love and serve, rather than to be served by, we would be living out the humility that we're called to. So since we know the humility of Christ, let us seek to humbly live like Christ. Now I should note that every sermon is hard to preach because I fall short, but this one is especially hard. I have my own selfish agendas and my plans, and I don't like to give them up. And so may God help us to live this out so that we can walk worthy of our master who came not to be served, but to serve. But that leads to our third section, and that is like Christ, we are to be walking gently. I was reminded this week of an amazing fact. You know, in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're given all these wonderful pictures of our Savior. And yet only in one place is Jesus describing his heart, meaning his animating center. I read at the beginning of the service, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Dane Ortland writes, In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he's austere and demanding in heart. We're not even told that he's exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he's joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly of heart. Now many Christians in our day want to so portray that you can be a strong man for the Lord and that Christians are not weak that they almost deny the beauty of gentleness. They hear this and they think, well yes, but Jesus had a whip in the temple. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites and whitewashed tombs. Paul opposed Peter to his face and told the Galatians he wished they'd emasculate themselves. Well, yes, there is wisdom for every situation is not the same. If a rabid dog comes running into your yard, it's not the time to be gentle. It's the time to be strong and firm. And Jesus and Paul did have strong words and angry reactions, but those are the exceptions, not the norm. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He instructs the churches, the church leaders should be 
not violent, but gentle. And when Jesus describes his very heart, he himself says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Thus, what there might be, and often are times or circumstances that call for a strong tone or action from us, our normal demeanor should be gentle. And just like humility, gentleness is not a value trait in our culture, nor was it back then. In fact, gentleness, again, was perceived by their society as being something low, like a servant. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and there there's a basketball team called the San Antonio Spurs. When I was growing up, the star was David Robinson. He was a really good player, MVP several times, but he had one fault, people said. David Robinson has always been nice, said Detroit's Isaiah Thomas, and their team has always been nice. But do you want to be a bunch of guys who are nice all the time, or do you want to win championships? And so, what was the problem they had? Well, he didn't taunt his opponents. At one time, another player decked him with an elbow, but he never retaliated or sought revenge. Though he'd fight for rebounds, he never played dirty. And to some, the only way to play is to play angry and dirty and David Robinson's just too nice. Now we must be clear that gentleness does not mean weakness. The opposite of gentleness is harshness, not power. Jesus was omnipotent, but he used his omnipotent hand to comfort, not crush. In fact, it's only the strong person who can be gentle. A strong person is able to control their emotions and desires, Whereas the weak are led along by their emotions and instincts like an animal. You know, the weak respond to their immediate urges. The strong hold those urges down and act with true gentleness. You don't need any strength of character to lose your cool. A toddler can do that. You need the power of God to be gentle. Thus being gentle is about controlling your strength. And extending the grace that God first extended to you, both in what you do and how you do it. And this gentle spirit plays out in how we deal with both Christians and non-Christians. Christians, you can flip back just one book to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So rather than being indifferent to other believers or gossiping about them, we're to talk to them directly about their sin. Notice what it said though. We're to do this with a spirit of gentleness. If we have the humility we discussed before this, we'll realize we all stumble. We realize, but for the grace of God, go I. Thus we don't come to them when we see their sin or they sin against them, sin against us. We don't come to them in anger that seeks revenge for hurting us. We don't come to them in pride thinking we're better than them. How could you ever do that? Instead, we humbly and gently offer the rescuing grace of Jesus Christ because we know that we were once also caught in sin. And this also affects how we act towards unbelievers. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with 
gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. You don't need to go online very long to see that our culture delights in seeing our opponents torn to shreds. We don't really want to know that their arguments are wrong. They're dumb. They're stupid. You can see it on conservative, liberal, whatever type of site. They asked one question and then they were dumbstruck. They couldn't even answer the most simple question. That's how dumb they are. Well, gentleness is concerned about winning the person and not just the argument. Gentleness values people and thus doesn't hide behind, well, it's the truth, ain't it? It doesn't wrongly boast, well, I just tell it like it is. Rather, gentleness tells the truth, but in a manner that heals, not hurts. It's the tender cut of the surgeon, not the stab of a knife. So is there an aura of gentleness about you? In your home, when someone forgets to do something or sins against you, do you gently confront or blow up? In your relationships, if someone does or says something against you, are they cringing knowing you're about to rage? Do people have to work on the proverbial eggshells around you because they don't know the next time you're going to lose it? Does your online presence flow with snarkiness, sarcasm, and biting put-downs? Or is there gentle questioning, a welcoming challenge, an understanding ear? Even if they didn't word everything perfectly, I understand what you're trying to say. Proverbs 15.1 tells us, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So since we know the gentleness of Christ, let us seek to live gently like Christ. And this gentleness then leads to our fourth one in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 2. So let us walk with patience. The third characteristic of a walk worthy of God is walking patiently. And this Stems from God's character. For 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, some people mistake God's patience for a lack of judgment. If that's a grave mistake, for Paul warns in Romans 2.4, not to presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And the order Paul gives of these various aspects of walking are important. For if we humbly recognize who we are, then we don't take such an offense when people sin against us. And if we're gentle with the wrongs of others, then that will lead to a patient approach to others. Yet, we often lack that humility and gentleness, and thus we're slow to listen to others, quick to speak, and quick to anger. And patience with others is the main focus of this patience here in Ephesians 4.2. Yes, it's good to be patient and waiting for that file to download. It's good to be patient when you're waiting for the letter or you're in the office or the waiting room or the day that you're anticipating to come. Yet in this context, notice he expands. The only one he expands on patience bearing with one another in love. That's explaining our patience. And these commands, as with all the ones before, are presuming something. In fact, anytime you give a command, it's presuming something in the background. If you hear someone say, make sure you put on plenty of sunscreen, you would presume, well, they're about to go outside and play for a while. 
They're not about to grab some pizza and go watch a movie. Or if someone says, make sure you buckle up, you would presume that they are about to get in a car and go drive. You wouldn't presume that they're going to go read a book. Each command makes sense in relation to something in the background. Thus, what does Paul presume when he talks to them to walk worthily, humbly, gently, and patiently? It's that we are tempted to not do those very things. That we are prone to consider our life only in relation to me, with no thought to how it affects others around me or God's reputation. That we proudly think we are the center of the universe. That when wrong, it's fine to react with harshness and sass. That I'm quick to be upset with your actions, well, patient with my own. In other words, Paul presumes that Christians are still in a fight for holiness. That even as Christians, we will sin against one another. And as for this one here, the third one, he's presuming that we often don't bear with one another in love. That we give up on people. And so he's calling us, bear with one another in love. Now it's important. He said, bear with love. Not just endure those people. Not just bear with them, but you don't really need to worry about loving them. Rather, we're to keep being involved in their life with love. You know, we are good at knowing how to be around people, but not engage with them. We know how to give short answers, avoid them, or commend ourselves. Well, I wasn't rude to them. Yet God calls us to be more than not rude. He calls us to actively love even those ones that it feels like, oh, that person? Oh, they just walked in. And maybe if I walk this way, I don't have to interact. No, bear with that person in love. You know, the very people who know how to poke your buttons, God wants you to be patient and loving with them. Now we need to be clear that patiently bearing with one another is not a minimizing of sin. We read Galatians 6.1 a minute ago, and it told us to lovingly confront, but notice when we see someone caught in a sin. As a mentor of mine said, we're not called to be junior Holy Spirits. Yes, there are times to confront people in their sin. But most of the time, we should heed the advice of Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. You know, every time you're offended, you don't have to bring it up. You could just overlook it. I'm going to let that one go. But do you have to retaliate every time you're sinned against? Every time they bump you, every time they do something, do you have to make sure, I'm going to make this right? Well, 1 Peter 2, 21-23 says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ could patiently endure sin because he was trusting God. Thus, our first response is to try and overlook sin. But there are times we must speak. Not out of anger, vengeance, or hate, but rather out of love. Because when someone is sinning, they're not just hurting you. They're hurting themselves. To love them, we look for the appropriate time to humbly and gently talk to them about their sin. 
If we love them, we don't allow them to continue in what is harming their life. But rather, as Paul says, we patiently bear it and we seek to help them in love. Love that patiently doesn't retaliate and explode, but also patient love that does not tolerate sin and resign ourselves to others' destructive behavior. The love, in other words, that wants what is best for others and patiently realizes that change often takes time. You might be thinking, well, it's easy for you to say, Pastor, try being patient with fill in the blank. You don't know how many times they've done X, Y, and Z. I have talked to them and talked to them. It's not easy to do. Well, I'm not saying it's easy to do. It's definitely not easy to do, and it's not natural at all. The natural thing for us is what Galatians 5.19 says. The works of the flesh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. No one has to teach that to us. We find that those come to us instinctively. Rather, it is going to be difficult. And the way to do this and honor God is to focus your gaze on Christ. As long as you're focusing on their sin, you're not going to find the strength to patiently endure with love. But as you focus on the Savior and His patient love for you in your sin, you will be emboldened and strengthened to love them, even as they push those same buttons over and over. It's as we marvel at our Savior that we're able to then live like our Savior. So since we know the patience of Christ, let us seek to live patiently like Christ. Well, let me conclude by noting that I know a sermon like this can be, boy, that was a beat down. I went in for some encouragements and picked me up for the week and all I heard was, you're not humble, you're not gentle, you're not humble. Woo, that'll get me through the week. Well, there's two wrong responses we can go from here. We can go, well, but you know what? You're all forgiven. Woo, great, we're done, forgiven. And we can move on. And yet, the other response is, we forget they're forgiven. We need to remember both. We need to remember, you know what? We probably all should leave this sermon going, I have a lot of work to do. But then that reminds us again of the humility of our Savior who would come in the flesh. Of the gentleness of our Savior who would come and care for us. And His patience as He works in us for decades. But then we don't just sit there focusing on Him. That impels us. Look, if my Savior would treat me like that, what a joy to go out and try my best. You know what? We're all going to fail this next week at being humble. And being patient, being gentle. But isn't it great to go and try to be a picture of our Savior to those around us? So, since we know Christ, let us seek to live like Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are so amazing. It takes little reflection to realize how fall, how far we fall short of who you are. So Lord, we thank you for your humility, your patience, your gentleness. And we thank you that you forgive us. And Lord, we want to be like you though. So would you strengthen us this week to be like you? That there would be an aura about us that is different because of what you're doing 
in us through your Son, by the power of your Spirit. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.